Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Today on Political Rewind, U.S. Senator Doug Jones is in our studio. In 2017, he became the first Democrat to win an Alabama Senate seat in more than two decades. But earlier as U.S. Attorney, he won murder convictions of two KKK members in the notorious Birmingham church bombings. We'll talk to him about that case and about the climate in Washington today. Plus, our panel weighs in on the waning days of the Georgia legislative session. Political Rewind starts now. Thanks so much for being with us for a Political Rewind today. I'm Bill Nygut. We've got a jam-packed show, so let's get right to today's panel. Of course, AJC's lead political writer, Jim Galloway, is with us. You read Jim in the Wednesday and Sunday newspaper. He also oversees the Political Insider blog at AJC.com, which these days especially is full of lots of news coming in at all hours of the day and night. The legislative session, Stacey Abrams, what, can I, what, what more do you want? It's all, yeah, okay, well, we're glad, that, of course, that uh, Jim is here as he is every Monday and Friday. University of West Georgia Associate Political Professor, Political Science Professor, Karen Owen joins us again. Hi, Karen, how you doing? I'm doing well. A Little later in the show, we're gonna talk about a man who your university has in the papers of, Newt Gingrich. Yes. All right, we'll get to yeah, we'll get to that a little bit later. Patricia Murphy is uh, back with us. Patricia, for uh, was a staffer on Capitol Hill. Yes. Sam Nunn, Max Cleland. Yes. Some out-of-state senator Richard before Bryan, that. Richard great guy. Two terms. <laughs> we loved him. Still Patricia, <laughs> yes, Patricia is a syndicated columnist, and uh, also you find her columns if she's not in your local newspaper in Roll Call and the Daily Beast. And our special guest joining us is. Uh, United States Senator Doug Jones from the state of Alabama. You all uh, certainly remember that he won a special election for Jeff Sessions' seat in the Senate. First Democrat elected in the state in 25 years? Was yeah, it? First elected in 25 yes. years. Yes. yes, yes, absolutely. And up for re-election again. In 2020. All right. So let's start uh, by talking about a book that you've just published and about your a career before you became a member of the United States Senate. Um, even as a young boy, you were, you were civil rights uh, early in your life became right. something that you really uh, were devoted to. And you talk about that in the early stages of the yeah. book. How, tell us about that. Well, you know, I, I'm, you know, I was born in 1954, so I grew up in a pretty segregated world out in Fairfield, Alabama, just on the outskirts of of Birmingham, and when I started into junior high and high school, that was the first time school integration was in my city. And you know, I think all the kids tried to do everything that we could to make a great junior high, a great high school, uh, and that required working together and trying to make sure that everybody did the right thing and stay calm. And you know, we did, a, I think, a pretty good job. We did a lot better job, I think, sometimes than our parents handled all that. And uh, we didn't have all the fights and whatever, but we did a pretty good job, made it through. I want to give everybody a chance to get in and talk to you about it, but I think you tell a couple of stories about your early life in the book that are really interesting. You say two months after um, 
JFK was assassinated, or, or I'm sorry, JFK was assassinated basically two months after, after the, the Birmingham the 16th That's Street correct. church bombing. That's right. And you were high school at no, that point? No, at that point. I Middle was, school? Uh, fourth grade. Oh, my gosh, you were yeah, that yeah. young. I was fourth been, grade, 1960, nine, nine years, years old. old. I was eight, yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yep. <laughs> You're all so much younger than I am. <laughs> so you had a teacher who thought that one way to process this would be to ask everybody to write <laughs> about uh, some aspect of JFK, what right. he meant, and that sort of thing. And, he, and you say in the book that's kind of where you got your calling. Yeah, well, you know, it was one of those things that you really, uh, I was a big JFK fan at the time, still am, and, and Bobby Kennedy as well. And I can remember that paper that we wrote, and it was, because it was such a traumatic thing for a lot of us. Not everybody in the South, but for a lot of us it was. And I can remember, I don't remember all the details of that little paper, but I can remember mapping out a political career that started like at the city council level and going all the way up to president, which by the way, I am not doing in 2020. <laughs> Is this not an announcement today? Clear, no, right. no, not at all. Uh, anything but that. But uh, it was, it was, it was kind of interesting to think back on that now. You know, uh, uh, Jim, you know, what he says is that that started him thinking about maybe be governor, maybe be president, but that his secret ambition <laughs> was to be an astronaut, right. a football player like Joe Namath, or uh, uh, maybe a... Probably all three. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, pick one. It was just the careers of a lifetime. So September 1963, Patricia, we know one of the most horrific acts of uh, the 60s in the south of Birmingham, uh, 16th Street church bombing, four little girls uh, murdered. And it, it, the impact that it had on everyone um, who was watching the civil rights movement across the country was terribly profound. And, and so it's interesting that as a fourth grader, uh, he, he saw that happen, didn't pay much attention to it, but later it would become such an important part of Doug Jones' life and career. Well, when I was covering Senator Jen's campaign, actually, I spoke with a number of African Americans who are just about your age. Right. Uh, the mayor of Birmingham's mother, Miss Woodson, right. um, was to celebrate her ninth birthday that day yeah. and said that she, since then, was never able to celebrate another birthday or enjoy it because little girls her age had been killed. And that, a lot, that history was so alive for so many people during that campaign that she said she never felt right until the killers were brought to justice. And that was why she was at a rally for you that day. Well, it was a, it, it obviously was a big point of our campaign. And I was very proud of the fact that we, we used that campaign not only in the African-American community. We, we used that as part of our campaign to show how you treat all people. And we did that, and we talked about, did the same, the same speech that I would do in the African-American churches I would do at the Chamber of Commerce uh, in other areas, in the urban areas. So it was, it was such an important part of Alabama's history, but in a sense, it was really a part of America's history. And the fact that we were able to get those convictions so many years later, I think, really is a healing process. A no, real no, healing. The, no, the principal was was uh, convicted maybe 15 years after that? Yeah, um, Robert Chambliss, known mm -hmm. as uh, Dynamite Bob, right. worked for the mm -hmm. city of Birmingham. Uh, my friend and hero, Bill Baxley, prosecuted him in 1977. and. Uh, one of the things I write about, I was a second-year law student at the time and cut classes to go watch that trial. And, and, and then you followed up with, with, with two more prosecutions yeah. in 2001 and 2002. Right, that. T 24 years later, Tommy Blanton and Bobby Frank Cherry, everyone knew that there was more people involved after that, but the case just, just got 
put on a shelf until we took over. Yeah, after the bombing, the FBI did come in and try to investigate. They didn't get a lot of cooperation from Correct. local authorities, obviously. And they eventually just decided they couldn't get very far. So they, they put away the case files. And when you came along as U.S. attorney, uh, it's interesting, you point out you became U.S. attorney, I think the same year Spike Lee's Four Little Girls oh, yeah. documentary. Absolutely. Which ginned up interest in re Absolutely. reopening the case, didn't it, it, it? It really did. The case had been secretly reopened anyway. And I write about this in the book because one of the things people forget, I mean, the federal the FBI investigated this thing. The case got closed after five years. And there was only a, a five-year statute of limitations for a civil rights death in those days. And that didn't change until the early 1990s. And so we... We were using 1963 law, and Spike's movie that came out, Four Little Girls, remarkable film, I think, did come in about the same time, and it was just right about the same time it became public that we were investigating the cases. So there was a lot of interest moving forward. We tried to manage expectations about all of that because we had seen some success in Mississippi in the Byron Day LeBeckwith conviction, the Sam Bauer conviction. But still, those were old cases, and you never know how that's going to go. And um, it was, it, there were a lot of people that were still around, but there were so many more who had passed on that we thought might have some information. Let me ask you, I, I, I once had Simon Wiesenthal in front of me hmm. uh, t talking about how important it was that he chased down everyone who was ever involved right. in the Holocaust. Is, is, is there a parallel there? Is, 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 is it's, yes. I, yeah, I, I mean, I mean, clearly, there, there is a certain amount of redemption that I think that people can find. There's a certain amount of justice that people can find. And in the case of Birmingham and I think Alabama, to some extent the South, there was a hell of a lot of healing involved. I never use the word closure with these convictions because I don't think if you close something, it, it, you tend to put it away. We can't ever close the books on events like this in the South uh, and in America, uh, but it sure brought a lot of healing. And so I think um, there's a lot of parallels in the way uh, that he worked to try to avenge and, uh, and have some reconciliation and redemption uh, for the Holocaust victims. Absolutely. So Dynamite Bob had been, actually had gotten the conviction on yeah. Dynamite Bob. Uh, there were basically four people who had been identified. One of them died but before yes. uh, you came along as U.S. Right. attorney. So you essentially had the opportunity to prosecute the other two uh, bombers. And at first, you tell us, the FBI did not want to share its files with you. I thought it was fascinating that you turned to a journalist, to those of us who've been mm -hmm. around covering news in the South for a while, Jack Nelson. Yeah. Uh, well, that was Baxley. That was Baxley. Oh, it was I mean, Baxley that was who Bill. went to. Bill, oh. and Jack, Bill and Jack were big, longtime friends. Oh, okay, sorry. He got absolutely no support whatsoever from the FBI until Jack Nelson, you know, went to the uh, attorney general and basically bluffed their, his way into getting some information. With, with me, it was a lot different. I was a presidentially appointed U.S. attorney, so it was hard to turn that. I guess. Well, that's <laughs> why I was, that was exactly what I was going to ask right. you. But, yeah. but, but, okay. but tell, tell us about the Texas guy. That's a good story. Oh, Cherry? Yes. Yeah, yes. Cherry was a piece of work. I'm telling you, he had moved to Texas in the 70s. Uh, they went out there. We actually employed an investigator uh, named Bob Eddy 
that Bill Baxley had used because I, I really believe that Eddie had him that close to confessing and uh, assisting in the case back in the 70s. So right before I became U.S. attorney, they went out there thinking that maybe this, you know, in this old age, he would have this epiphany, which, which none of these old Klansmen do, by the way. They never have those. Um, and Cherry ended up, you know, saying, I don't want to talk to you. And four hours later, he finally stops talking, most of which was lies, a lot of blunderbuss. He did one interesting thing, though, and that is admitted being part of a group that attacked Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth mm -hmm. in 1957. And another journalist, Jerry Mitchell, mm -hmm. over in Mississippi started looking at that, and we started looking at it. And lo and behold, there's a film of it. And, you know, six years before this bombing, there's a film of Bobby Frank Cherry attacking Fred Shuttlesworth all over school integration which helped us form a strategy for the case because this bombing happened five days after Birmingham schools were integrated. You know, Karen, one of the things that struck me as I was reading this, this uh, story is that here we are, it's now 2001, and uh, Doug Jones, as U.S. attorney, is going to prosecute the two uh, suspected uh, uh, bombers. And even as recently as 18, 19 years ago, the climate of fear and potential intimidation, the, the, the community that did not want to open these old wounds uh, was something that he had to, to push back against to make this happen. Yeah, it's interesting that you felt confident that you could go ahead and, and continue to seek the justice. And, and you're right, the communities were involved. Some of them needed this healing and others were having to react to what could have, what could be said, um, but knowing kind of the truth that was there. And I wanted to ask, um, since you mentioned Bill Baxley kind of as your hero, and yeah. how much did you rely on what you witnessed in the first trial for what you were doing for mm -hmm. the second? Well, evidentiary-wise, we couldn't ver use very much of that. Bill gave us a lot of ideas, but more importantly, it was Bill and that team who just, who just brought the passion uh, to everything. We saw the reaction, or I did, uh, in 1977, once that conviction was there, and I knew how important it was. We really, it, every, we had such a great team. I mean, we really had a good team of investigators and prosecutors, and everybody, the minute one would get down, the others would get them up and bring them up, and we just kept pushing and pushing. So I think Baxley uh, and the families were real inspirations to us. Absolutely. Patricia, you covered a lot of that race. You were yeah. over there. Um, it, so, of course, the question becomes, I mean, and we know that Doug Jones had an enormous, a massive turnout of African-American voters who wanted to see him uh, win. Um, and you already told us one story about that. So how much do you, do you think, as a journalist, uh, that community was there for him because of these things that happened in 2001, 2002, and how much of it was the way he ran his campaign just in the time frame of the campaign itself? Well, uh, the name Doug Jones was new to some of us from outside of Alabama. It was not new to people from Alabama, yeah. and especially to people from Birmingham. So my uh, first impression going in there was this was not... Um, a new dynamic that people were dealing with. These were, this was a man they had known for a long time. And you became so close with the families and yeah. with the churches in Birmingham, and I think also live nearby, yes. that this was not uh, a race to them. This was sort of a moment for 
really one of their community's heroes to come forward and put himself on the ballot. There was a broader campaign, obviously, in Alabama going on, um, and a lot of the attraction among Republican women had to do with how Senator Jones was yeah. running his race. Yeah, uh, there was a ton, obviously, of controversy, salaciousness, um, but the campaign you ran was a little bit, was seemed somehow to be removed from that. And it, what kind of dynamic did that play in that campaign? And without that dynamic, how do you approach Well, it's interesting, race? we, you know, look, we had a, we had a process, we had a plan in, in uh, my, football, favorite football coaches terms, uh, Nick Saban has a process. And, and, and sometimes you win, and, but most, I mean, most Wait, time you, you remember win. you're talking to Georgia <laughs> yeah. TV and radio. Said, most time you win, but sometimes you don't. Uh, Senator Isaac and I had a, a number of those kind of conversations. Um, but w we had a plan and we stuck with that. We did not anticipate those just in unbelievable allegations. And in fact, we believe that hurt the race down the road mm -hmm. because it made the race very tribal, fake news, the whole nine yards. And we just stayed focused. We knew that he was going to get attacked elsewhere. I didn't need to do that. So I just kept focusing on my target audiences wherever I could go. And I had a broad target. I mean, I was looking at everybody. And that's, we stayed focused on our kitchen table issues. From if I could one. ask one more question on the bombings. Yeah. Was there ever, did you come across uh, ever come across any links between the Birmingham bombers and Atlanta? Hmm. Because there was a pretty significant yes. bombing network in Atlanta at that time. Yeah, that was probably that was primarily J.B. Stoner yes. uh, and mm -hmm. that group. And Ed we Fields didn't. And we we did not. In fact, I had Stoner was still alive, and we subpoenaed him to the grand jury. And uh, of course, he wasn't going to testify to anything uh, at all. He was he he was as avowed racist and anti-Semitic in his old age yeah. as he was in his early days. It was just horrific talking to him. You couldn't believe that somebody would look you in the face and say the things he he said. We didn't see that. I know that in the 70s, Bill uh, Baxley really looked at that because he had gotten some information about Stoner. But as it turned out, Stoner had not done the Birmingham bombing. Although he he did do a bombing uh, of Fred Shuttlesworth Church and ultimately went to prison right. for that. Mm -hmm. That's what he served time for. And I think was in the same cell with uh, Robert Chambliss <laughs> during those times. Really? Yeah. Fred Shuttlesworth, uh, one of the great civil rights leaders and ministers in the South, who I, I think, you know, it's interesting about Shuttlesworth. He gets a little bit lost, except by people who really understand yeah. The movement. He was an extraordinary man. Unbelievable guy. I got to know him in his, his later years. Um, I spoke at his funeral. I actually went to see Fred a, a couple hours before he passed. He was an amazing man, a very, very brave man, just bullheaded sometimes, just barrel straight on. And uh, there are a lot of people who believe that but for Fred Shuttlesworth, there might not have been a Martin Luther King or others. He really paved the way in so many ways mm -hmm. for the for the other leaders. Uh, you talk so much about, um, obviously there was a great deal of opposition to what you were doing, but you also talk a lot about silence and inaction from yeah. good people. And can you talk a little bit about the lessons that you brought from, from your experience? Well, I think that those lessons are coming home now, to be honest with you. I think a lot of the, the, uh, the violence, and, and we got pushback. I don't want anybody to think that we got a lot of hate mail and and uh, threats during these cases because we really didn't. It was just more pushback of people who didn't want to reopen yeah. yes. those sure. old wounds. Um, but I think during the day, there were a lot of people in, uh, in America and then throughout the South 
who just would not stand up and speak out to what they knew uh, the Jim Crow laws to be so um, antithetical to everything in a civilized society, uh, to the Constitution, to everything about it. And because of that, you had certain leaders. You had them here in Georgia. You had certainly had them in Bull Connor and George Wallace in Alabama. And they would say things that would just empower people like the Klan to do these things because they felt like they could do it and get away with it. And in fact, this bombing, they did get away with it for, for so, so long. And I think that that's why this book is very important today because we're beginning to see a lot of rhetoric, uh, not only among public officials, but social media and everywhere else. And people have to stand up and speak out and, and hold that rhetoric back. We're talking with uh, U.S. Senator uh, Doug Jones about his book. I think we've already put it up on the screen once, Bending Toward Justice, the Birmingham Church Bombing that Changed the Course of Civil Rights. Um, before we take a break, uh, let's move beyond the book for a couple minutes. You got a reelection campaign coming up. I do. You're living in a pretty deep red state over there in Alabama. Um, how are you approaching this? Are you looking for the same coalition that brought, put you in office the first time you around? Know, it, are they going to be as energized if you don't have a Roy Moore uh, against you? Oh, look, my, the, the voters that came out for me were, I think they were energized regardless. And I think that that energy still exists. I, I don't look for coalitions because the minute you start identifying people to join a coalition, you're going to exclude people. And we want to be there for everyone. Um, so we're going to focus on the same things that we're, we, we were focused on. And, you know, we, we talk about red and blue based on winners and losers. But let me tell you, this, the, Alabama, the South, right here in Georgia, it's all changing. And you may not see the winners and losers and all. There's a lot of things going on in, in the South. And I think uh, we can help with a lot of healing in the South. So we're going to be looking at the same issues of health care, education, jobs, the economy, and stay away from those issues that divide us. Okay, let's do this. Um, let's take a break. We'll come back. We'll continue the conversation, broaden it out a little bit. Um, and, and we're thrilled you're going to stay with us and talk about some of the other issues on the show today. But, but again, here's the book, Bending Toward Justice by U.S. Senator Doug Jones. Now, we've got some time shifting we've got to do with you right now. If you are listening to us on the radio, yes, we're live. Um, if you're watching us at 7 o'clock tonight on TV or Sunday morning <laughs> at 9 o'clock on TV, uh, then you probably missed the fact that Doug Jones will be at the Carter Center tonight. You're at 7 at the Carter 7 Center? 7 o'clock at the Carter Center. Uh, we'll be talking uh, more about the book. The other thing I want to say is that even as we are on the air live on the radio right now, the debate over the heartbeat abortion bill is unfolding in the state Senate. And unfortunately, on our show today, we don't know the outcome. All of you who are watching the TV versions of the show will know more than we do. But for the live audience, we expect this debate to go on for most of the day, afternoon. Most of the afternoon. We can, we can say, uh, without question, there is a bigger police presence there uh, than m many people have seen in, at the state capitol. In, in a very long time. And a lot of handmaidens are back out there again today. All right, let's do this. Let's get a break out of the way. And when we come back, more on Political Rewind. Are you thinking of getting rid of your old car, truck, or RV? GPB's Vehicle Donation Program is here to help. Donating has never been easier. We'll take care of everything, including free pickup of your vehicle. Just go to gpb.org slash cars or call 877-GPB-1-CAR. That's 877-472-1227. And thanks so much. Beep, beep. 
My name is Chuck Reese. I'm the editor of an online magazine called The Bitter Southerner. I've seen decades of misconceptions about the South from the Beverly Hillbillies on down. But in my new podcast with GPB, we're going to challenge those stereotypes and paint a very different picture of the American South. Join me for The Bitter Southerner podcast. Details are at bittersouthener.com. Jim, I've uh, kidded that this has been U.S. Senator Week on Political Rewind. Uh, We have Doug Jones today, which we're grateful uh, for. Johnny Isaacson came in the other day, and about two hours before the show, his people called you, they called me, uh, Greg Bluestein, and said, uh, be ready for it. Isaacson is going to take a shot at President Trump over the way he has talked about John McCain all this past few days, tweeting over the weekend, statements to reporters at the White House uh, early in the week. And he came in, and let's listen first, just very quickly, to uh, what uh, Johnny had to say about Trump. It's deplorable what he said. Uh, That's what I called it from the floor of the Senate uh, seven months ago. (coughs) It will be deplorable, deplorable seven months from now if he says it again. And I will continue to speak out because there's one thing that we've got to do. You may not like immigration. You may not like this. You may not like that. that you may be a Republican. You may not be a Democrat. We're all Americans. There aren't Amer- uh, Democrat casualties and Republican casualties on the battlefield. There are American casualties. And we should never reduce the service that people give to this country, including the offering of their own life, to anything but political fodder in, in Washington, D.C., or anywhere else for that matter. So, uh, Jim, you wrote your column in Sunday's paper is about this, and and it's about the way in which the Isaacson folks uh, positioned this, that he was really going to give them a whooping. Well, I mean, he kind of made the the announcement on something called The Bulwark. It's a a website for for, uh, anti-Trump conservatives. Yeah, it's a conservative. Uh, A.B. Stoddard is the... uh, Charlie Sykes is there, and and so is Bill Kristol. Yeah. And so it was the right venue for, for something like that. And he, yeah, he promised to, uh, to to give Trump a whipping, and and I suppose in in, in my argument is it was a whipping of the 1979 sort. <laughs> it was free Twitter whipping. It was not a it was not a Mark Zuckerberg Twitter, yeah. um, you know, meltdown Twitter whooping. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he he the, the words Donald. And Trump never crossed his lips. Yeah, you know, Patricia, I pushed him as hard as I possibly could to go a little further. But, but you know, here's the part of the dilemma. And I'm going to ask Senator Jones about this, too. Uh, he has important projects that he wants to get passed in the Senate, n- n- not the least of which is the emergency funding for Georgia farmers who've been devastated by Hurricane Michael. Yes, in this same interview, um, in which he did, I think the word deplorable was doing a lot of work there. That is Hillary Clinton's (laughs) description of Donald Trump. So to me, that was its own sort of, um, and not a dog whistle, it's its own sort of like, hello, I'm being serious. So so to me, and also we know Johnny Isaacson is quite um, uh, reluctant to go after anybody for any reason. So this to me felt enough like a Johnny Isaacson version of a whooping as there could be. But in the same interview uh, as this conversation of how offended are you by Donald Trump was where is that disaster money for Georgia that has to be pushed by the White House every single day and yeah. it's, they've backed off a little bit pushing it forward still don't have the money so your republican senators and i would love to hear from senator jones also <laughs> are in this very difficult situation where the press 
moderates want to hear them screaming from the rooftops, I am horrified. But at the same time, there's a president in the White House who is quite petty and will punish people for not being loyal and not speaking favorably of him. And they've got specific, important projects on the table. Yeah, I think it's also, I think you made another great point, which is Johnny Isaacson has never been an attack dog. That's simply never yes. been his style, which is one so of the this reasons. this was his version of red face. That's rage. exactly <laughs> right. So, you know, so, so Senator, um, your Democratic colleagues are never at much of a loss, many of them, in attacking the president. I'd love to certainly to hear what you think about his comments about John McCain. But, but I'd also love to ask you about the tension that you must feel sure. as a Democratic senator in a very, very red state. I would assume to some extent you too feel a need to be somewhat cautious, like a Johnny Isaacson, in how you criticize the president of the United States. Well, I, th I think people ought to be a little bit cautious regardless. After all, it is the president of the United States. And I think uh, I think people attack President Obama unfairly. I think they pre attack President George W. Bush unfairly, President Clinton. I mean, that happens and it gets, it seems to be getting worse the more polarized we get. So I think people need to have some respect at the same time. Um, and I agree with you, that was as close to a whooping as Johnny does. He is <laughs> absolutely one of, if not the my most favorite people in the Senate. He is a prince of a man. And, um, but there does come a time though when any public official crosses a line that you've got to speak out. And I think you see Democrats speaking out more than they should on many occasions, but certainly many in the Republican Party not knowing what to do, because let's face it, this is Trump's Republican Party right now, and they are concerned about it. But I think that if we would have more speak out, like they have done some on uh, the McCain speech, but also on issues about Muslims and religion and on white supremacy. People, I think, need to, 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 to call that uh, for what it is and speak out a little bit more. I'd like to see, and I think you can do that and still not jeopardize the projects like the, or the farmers, because we've got that as well in yeah. Alabama. I'm part of that bill as well. Karen, you want to jump in? Well, I was just thinking it's also, we see it as a generational change too. So Johnny Isaacson has served in public service for 40 years yeah. and has learned how to be measured right. and know the right, right tone to take because he understands the representative role. His role is to be taking care of citizens of Georgia and making sure that he is going out for their behalf. And so that is being measured and calling it right or wrong when someone does the wrong thing, but also saying, hey, um, we have projects. These are my pe people and we need to help them. And so I think that's, and going back again to that generational, the younger members, of course, even some who are in the millennial age, feel confident that they can just speak out and say what they like and not um, I agree. call it right. I, I agree with that. It's a, it's, it's a question of, of governing. Johnny knows that what it takes to govern, but he also knows what's the difference between right and wrong. Senator, if I could ask you, um, uh, one thing that Isaacson was worried about was the relationship between the president, its commander in chief, and the military as a whole. Now, yeah. Alabama's got a good number of, uh, yes, of, of military facilities there. Is, is, is that relationship changing? Can you, can you see it 
changing? You, you know, I, I don't think I can see it. Uh, I visit those installations and I talk to, to folks, but they're never going to let their guard down to, to do that. They are going to be loyal uh, to the extent uh, that they show that, I think. But you've got you've to gotta suspect that with things going on in the VA and, and comments like that about someone who served this country, you've got you've to think that it's, it is a morale buster for a lot of people who would want to support the president, not only as the commander in chief, but also politically. Um, so I, it, it's got to have, it's got to be taking its toll for sure. Are Republican senators in conversations with you behind closed doors? I'm not asking you for names, um, but are they wrestling with this internally? Are they seeing what's being said and thinking to myself, I can't believe this is happening? Or are they saying, eh, I, I, I'm just going to focus on what I need to focus I, on I, or even I, agree with him? I think that there are more people than not that just scratching their head going, what do we do about this? Okay. Because they don't agree. I mean, there's some really good people in the United States Senate, and they're not as partisan as it may appear sometimes on the dueling press conference that you, the conferences that you often see. And in private conversations, people... People generally, are, they don't know what to do because they, you know, they, they have those projects. They do want to govern. They do want to represent the people that put them there. But at the same time, they're, they're this at a loss. I will tell you, I think the broad consensus, if you take something with everybody and, and in, enter a secret ballot, they will tell you this is, this is a brave new world. They have just not witnessed anything like this with some of the things that the president does. And everybody, including Democrats, are trying to get our uh, arms around that and how to best react by still being a public servant. Yeah, but, but I think we hear from off the record, uh, and, and that was the point I was going to make, from some Republican members, when you say to them, what do you think of uh, President Trump, their first comment is, are we off the record? <laughs> I mean, you're, that's really what you're alluding to. Yes, I think there's an assumption among uh, people outside of the bubble that there is this internal wrestling going on with the majority of Republican members because the president's behavior is so far afield from their own behavior. Um, but there has been just precious little willingness to um, to go up against him on just about anything, including that uh, what he uh, ended up. Well, vetoing. I mean, let's let's be realistic. You know, once you've been in in uh, the Senate or the House or wherever. Uh, you look and see, let's look at the ones who did speak out the most. Let's say that would be Jeff Flake and Bob Corker and Mark Samford and see where they are. They are not, they are no longer in public service. Karen, you know, I, one of the, uh, go ahead. I was you, just going to say, the, and you made the point, Senator, that those people who were affected because Trump owns the Republican Party right now, he is the head of the party. And I think that internal tension is, okay, he is our party leader. How do we call him out, but yet this is our brand. This is where we're at. And do I take the pain that could come or do I still, still try to govern, still try to win an election? All right, so let's broaden it out beyond how Republicans uh, on the Hill are responding to the president and talk more broadly about the fact that uh, this week, uh, the Pentagon released a list of potential targets for funding, military targets to help fund the wall, uh, uh, that the money the president needs for the wall. There is more money targeted than they'll actually have to take. They, I think the list is like $12.7 yeah, billion. Like dollars. Georgia is targeted for $260 million, including a big chunk of almost $100 million from the Cybersecurity Center that's been one of the prides of Governor Nathan Deal being able to bring it here out in Augusta. 
I assume you've seen your I mean, list got, and we, are aware of it. Some serious. We got some very important projects going on in Alabama, whether it's Fort Rucker or the Aniston Army Depot, uh, that are in jeopardy from this. This sure. is like a mini BRAC in yeah. some it, ways. It is, and and I believe it's an unconstitutional mini BRAC because these are these are monies that Congress appropriated. These are monies that the military said this is how we're going to spend these, and now all of a sudden, with a national emergency, they're going to be spent elsewhere. And I think people have to understand this is a real slippery slope. If the courts uphold this, it's a very slippery slope for future administrations. It's a, it's a very effective tool, though, for an executive branch to use to control what goes on in the legislature, in, in the legislature. Oh, sure. Yeah, that makes sense to me, Kara. I mean, it, say, I was going to say yes, and it kind of goes back to just Article 1, Article 2, and what powers is he willing to exert, and when is Congress going to check him? And they've tried, but you've got to have that ability to override the veto. All right, um, let's do this. Why don't we get the uh, last break of our show out of the way so we can come back. Uh, we've got more that we want to talk about. We still have Senator Doug Jones. Have I mentioned he has a new book? <laughs> bending <laughs> bending toward justice, the Birmingham church bombing that changed the course of civil rights. And again, if you're listening live on the radio, uh, Senator Jones will be at the Carter Center uh, live tonight. Um, we often uh, do shows from out there. It's free admission, I right. believe. It is. But people are going to have to get there very early if they want to get. Are you in the chapel out there? You know, I. Do you know? I just go where All they right, tell we'll me find to out. go. Our producers will find out <laughs> and will report it. So if people are listening live on the radio, they may want to come out and see you. Great. Uh, so we're going to get to another break. But before we do, we've got to make mention of the fact that former President Jimmy Carter has now passed George H.W. Bush and become the nation's longest living president. He is 94 years and 172 days, but who's counting? During his post-presidency, we already know these stories, he's worked on Habitat for Humanity, building more than 4,000 houses. He's traveled the world promoting human rights, monitoring elections. He's written more than 30 books. Last year, he shared his secrets for a long and healthy, healthy life on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. You know, since I've been out of politics, I've tried to get rid of those uh, animosities that I used to cherish. Sure. And you've outlived most of them, I'm guessing. <laughs> That's another secret to my success, yes. <laughs> you know that uh, Carter still teaches Sunday school down there at Maranatha Baptist Church uh, in Plains. He has now taught 800 Sunday school classes since leaving office. And there you see it. Rosalind has been with him all the way through, uh, including his awful 2015 cancer diagnosis. So congratulations, President Carter, on a life long lived and very well lived. We'll be right back. You know. I'm Ira Plato. This week on Science Friday, physician Eric Topol talks about how AI can allow you more quality time with your doctor by giving mundane tasks to deep medicine. Plus, a new approach using light and sound shows dramatic results in treating Alzheimer's in lab tests. It's all on Science Friday from WNYC Studios. This afternoon at 3 on GPB. 
while the Boeing 737 MAX remains grounded, we look back at the plane's 50-year history. It is the most produced Boeing jetliner ever. I mean, they've sold you know, more than 15,000 of these things since the beginning. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. How decisions made years ago to upgrade the plane could be tied to the problems of today. That's this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. 4 till 7 on GPB and gpbnews.org. We're back on Political Rewind. Uh, by the way, we wanted to remind you that on Monday night, April 8th, we are going to be taking the show out to the University of Georgia. We'll be on the campus in Athens uh, to do our show in front of a live audience. Uh, you see the information if you're watching on TV. Uh, April 8th, 7 p.m., the UGA Instructional Plaza. If you want to join us and spaces are going fast, go to politicalrewind.org. RSVP there. It's free, but uh, we've only got so many seats, and so we want to make sure that all of you want to join us. Jim, we always have fun. You'll be there because you're a UGA grad. Of course, yeah. Bluestein will be there. He's another one, another <laughs> bulldog. Um, it's going to be a fun night. Uh, Chuck Bullock is going to be is there. Is it going to be outdoors? Dean? It's a plaza. We're going to be in a, in a big auditorium, oh, okay. I'm told, right. over there. Okay, so it's always fun, and we'd love to have you uh, join us out there. And the show will air on Tuesday afternoon, so you'll be able to listen then or watch it on Facebook Live, however you want to deal with it. All right, Galloway. Um, so this week, there's this story that's been making... It, it started popping up a little earlier than this week, but... There's this talk that Biden may want to put Stacey Abrams immediately on a ticket and run with her as his uh, uh, vice presidential candidate. And it's gaining some momentum, but it's also being criticized broadly. They, uh, they met two, two yeah. weeks ago, I think, yeah. I think now. Uh, and uh, neither party has said has said much publicly about the meeting. Right. And uh, yeah, you had Axios on Tuesday or so break the news that the, from from a couple of sources, not from Biden himself, that that he was thinking of going, coming out of the gate with a running mate named Stacey Abrams. Uh, which you know it 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 uh, Howard Dean loves the idea. It balances yeah. you know it, you know it, yeah it, 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 <laughs> you know if, and you know and his point was you know if it, it, if if you've got an old white guy well then a forty five year old black woman kind of fits <laughs> yeah and uh, uh, but it's yes yes it's also been panned too as as a little bit of pandering yeah Karen among the critics are those who are saying you know uh, first of all why should Stacey Ab Abrams hitch her star to one candidate who's running on the Democratic side uh, when she could very easily become the uh, vice presidential choice of any number. Of, of those people, and also some are saying it's patronizing. Uh, correct in the fact that why just go ahead and attach to one when you're not sure that he's going to actually be the Democratic nominee. Yeah. Um, so go ahead and why not put your own self in the 2020 race and you could be the presidential candidate potentially. You don't have to just be the vice president. Now, we, we, we should, I should note here, Bill, uh, we're all, the AJC is also, Bluestein is also yeah. reporting that uh, Ms. Abrams has has recently been in contact with Chuck Schumer. Yeah, she, yes, mm -hmm. right, for, right. For, and, uh, to, to run against David Perdue. Yeah, which we means know. That, which means there's a little bit of a tug of war. Yeah, Patricia, we know Schumer's pushing hard to get her into that Senate race. Well, we know what Chuck Schumer wants. It's yeah. what does Stacey Abrams want. Exactly. Also, Joe Biden has to get into the race before he gets her <laughs> 
nominees, and I think uh, in no way to compare Stacey Abrams to Sarah Palin, because could you be any more oh, different? Oh, man. But I think we've seen the movie where the older senator wants to jazz up his ticket with a female who he's met once before, and it didn't end well. And so I think we have, our only example to follow is, uh, is not positive. Um, I think you'd want to see if they have chemistry, if the, if, if the grassroots wants it. You know, there's a lot to do specifically get into the race, and maybe Senator Jones has Yeah, Senator, what do you make of the <laughs> Stacey Abrams phenomenon? And do you have any words for her on what she ought to do next? No, I, I do not have any <laughs> words for her on what she ought to do next. I, I, I will say just from, you know, Joe Biden and I have been friends for a long, long time. Uh, he didn't get uh, where he is in the political world by making uh, rash decisions. Uh, on, from my perspective, I think this is more of a media issue than it is a real political issue. I would be very surprised. And he, you know, people surprise me all the time in today's world. I would be very surprised if this far out that Joe Biden or any other presidential candidate would come out of the gate with a running mate and run as a team through the primaries. There is just way too much that yeah. can happen between now and I would just be very surprised. So, so without regard to whether she is going to be on a ticket with Joe Biden, just Stacey Abrams as herself, what, what do you make of this phenomenon? She's become a national star. Well, because she, you know, look, she is an incredible candidate. She, is, she ran a wonderful race. She came that close to becoming uh, uh, the governor of Georgia uh, at a time when four or five years ago, no one would have, would have dreamed that that was possible. Mm. Look, it kind of goes back to what I was saying a little bit earlier about things going on. Uh, in the South. And I think when you do that and you raise the kind of money she did, have the kind of profile she does, and, and, and project the kind of uh, image that you can, your stock rises. And um, I want to make sure from, and, and I came over and campaigned for her. I worked mm -hmm. for her some, yeah. um, to, to do that because I was very happy uh, to see uh, that ticket. That whole ticket over here was, was good. And people consider that a loss. I didn't consider it a loss at all uh, for Democrats in the South. I consider the, uh, everything that happened as a big win because we've got to play long ball uh, here. And I think okay. that that's what, it, and she, she, is, she can certainly do that. She can do a lot of things. She just needs to be very deliberate and thoughtful. All right, let me take on another uh, quickly uh, issue. Uh, the vice president was in town yesterday. He was with uh, uh, the governor, with Brian Kemp. He was, uh, who else was in that party? Uh, um, Doug, Doug Collins was right. with him. And he decided to go after Keisha Bottoms because of something Keisha Bottoms had said a while back about having uh, uh, people detained by ICE in uh, Atlanta jails. Here's what Keisha Bottoms said first. Oh, I'm sorry. They're telling me in the booth that we want to hear Pence first. Let's do that. I would say to uh, the mayor that uh, criminal illegal immigrants, gang members on our streets are what inflict misery. And now Keisha Bottoms made these comments months earlier, and they were what Pence was reacting to. Atlanta will no longer be complicit in a policy that intentionally inflicts misery on a vulnerable population without giving any thought to the horrific fallout. As the birthplace of the civil rights movement, we are called to be better than this. So Patricia, I just don't know 
what the vice president of the United States gains by attacking the mayor of the city he's visiting. I know she's a Democrat standing next to a governor who presumably is going to have a big role in what happens to a potential state takeover of Hartsfield-Jackson Airport. It just said to me that the Trump administration is based in part on attack. Or the, 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 the president and vice president, let's be yeah. more specific. Uh, well, uh, since this is not happening in a vacuum, Senator Perdue is up uh, coming yeah. into the next election cycle. And immigration has become the issue of each base. And so for, um, for Vice President Pence, he's not coming to Georgia to see the moderates and the middle of the roaders. He was down to raise money <laughs> right. for David Perdue. You got to talk on an official event. Uh, immigration is top of mind for this president, especially because of the, the national emergency. And so um, this to me was uh, ringing the bell for the base. Uh, and it's an issue that works very, very well for Republicans. And nope. so I'm not at all surprised that he would do that, e even in Atlanta. No, the, the context uh, for, for, for Mayor Bottoms is that uh, her comment was made in the middle of the, the furor over the family separation. Yes, that's right. And, and but, but quite truthfully, uh, when she made the Atlanta city jails off limits to, to, to ICE detainees, they were there were none. There were none, <laughs> and there are there are plenty of places for them to be kept. Uh, I mean, it's it's a political statement on both sides. Uh, but I think I think Patricia's right. I mean, is it's it's a it's a good uh, yeah, Pence's visit was a good signal mm. of what we can expect in a U.S. Senate race And they race have to make the case that there's an emergency, so we're yeah. talking about it. That's my take. I think that's right. But you know, it's funny we were talking before about Johnny Isaacson being you know a gentleman in in the way he's conducted himself in public life, it just seemed odd that the vice president would come and attack the mayor of the city he's visiting. I think that is true, that you wouldn't expect this national leader to be here and, and speaking out to the mayor in such a way. But also, it just reminds us how nationalized politics is, that it's not just about local and state issues anymore, that it is a very much those national issues are playing out in our cities and our state. And he brought that message here, and he's reminding all voters that this is the issue that we're going to talk about, and we need to keep it at the top of your mind. Okay, um, let's move on. Uh, C-SPAN celebrated its 40th anniversary of televising live the proceedings of the United States House uh, this week. And what's interesting is they began this, Senator, uh, the same time that Newt Gingrich arrived as a freshman member of Congress. And there is no one who had made better, who made better use of special orders of uh, those Moments where you get to stand, as you know, in, in the House, in front of the, uh, the whole House. It's empty, but the C-SPAN camera is trained on you. And you can create the impression you're talking to the entire House of Representatives. And Gingrich was a master at using it. And I looked it up. The C-SPAN video library has 1,463 videos of Newt Gingrich <laughs> in their library. Um, and uh, so he's been one of the most prolific uh, uh, users of the media. And it made him a star. It well, it star. started making him a star. Yeah, I, you know, look, I think uh, to, to his credit, uh, there are people in this world who see those things 
uh, I can look and see the power of that and see the power of television. I think the, the Kennedy folks saw that in 1960 with the race. And now, you know, with, with that, he certainly used it. And I think uh, the Republican Party tended to do a, a lot better in those early years than the Democrats did. I think we kind of caught up with that now. But it's on the other on the other hand, you do have have, have many people in D.C., including uh, Republicans, Saxby Shambliss, for one, will, who will point to the, the, the C-SPAN as kind of the beginning of, of Washington dysfunction. Yeah. Because you had you had House member after House member giving these special order speeches. Then they weren't talking to the chamber. They were talking, they, they were making the bunkum speeches of old to, to their districts. Well, that's the argument uh, that a lot of uh, uh, I guess members of the judiciary have uh, in their objections to putting C-SPAN cameras on the Supreme Court, which I, fa I personally think would be fascinating, but yeah. you wonder what it would do to the court and I, to prosecutors. I, I'm not sure I completely agree with Senator Shamless, though. I, I, I really think uh, as much as anything uh, that that wouldn't have had an effect if we hadn't start gerrymandering districts uh, to the point that we've gerrymandered districts. Uh, and that's on both sides of the aisle. I still think that is the biggest problem in American politics today. Ironically, uh, when he became speaker in 1995, Newt Gingrich was the one who ordered C-SPAN because the Congress can control what C-SPAN does to put in what they call a cutaway camera so that when you made your, special, your speech, it wasn't just you standing looking at the camera. They would show the entire uh, uh, chamber and see that it was empty. <laughs> so he, he probably realized what was good for the goose is good for the gander. Yes, and I think that we would probably all sit here know that Gingrich was very strategic in how he has been a politician. And, you know, having it to where members could offer speeches back to the district kind of just has, we've seen the explosion of the idea that they're always thinking of re-election. And it's no longer just if you one term up and back home, it's making a career and you've got to continue to go out and speak to those voters. Again, with C-SPAN too, I'll say this, it helped bring Contract of America to the forefront. Yeah. Like it allowed sure. the Republicans right. to discuss the platforms they were going to put up. And I would imagine that if we think about Pelosi today, she could utilize that in the House with some Democrats and those special orders and times to speak to Well, them. we congratulate <laughs> C-SPAN on 40 years. I, I've spent a, much time back in the early days with Brian Lamb, and he was so proud of that creation. And we congratulate them on uh, 40 years of live broadcasts from, uh, from Capitol Hill. Uh, one last thing. Uh, Patricia Murphy, in the current roll call, <laughs> you have a column that I think this former staffer on Capitol Hill, who worked for Nathan Deal when yes. he was a Democrat, this senator who was a former staffer on Capitol Hill, mm -hmm. right, you worked for? Uh, senator Heflin from Alabama. And you who did eight things I wish I'd known when I worked on Capitol Hill. Give us just a couple of them, Patricia. Uh, well, the one that surprised me the most, that I got the most, uh, was advice to, to staffers, current staffers, from former staffers, and their second most frequent piece of advice was be kind. Be uh -huh. kind to constituents who are upset. Be kind to uh, members and staffers on the other side of the aisle because that's how you get your work done. And uh, generally, uh, the lack of, I don't, it's not really a lack of kindness up there. I think when you're on the Hill, it's right. really a lovely place to be and work. And uh, the value of kindness 
uh, is something that people really put a high premium on. All right, can we today. post a link to this on our uh, on our social media so people can read it? It's a fun it's a fun column. Uh, one of them is choose your boss wisely. Did you talk to <laughs> some Amy one. Klobuchar's <laughs> people about that? that well, hard? not on the record. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, we're out of time uh, for today's show. Um, uh, Jim Galloway, thank you so much for being here. You'll be back with me at two o'clock on Monday when we will be able to have a full blown conversation about what's happening as we do the show live on the radio and tape for tonight in the state Senate. Probably one of the most explosive measures that either of us has seen since the changing of the state flag and beyond. Probably. The heartbeat bill. The yes. heartbeat bill. So we'll talk about that in detail on Monday. Patricia Murphy, it's always fun to have you here. Same with you, Karen Owen, who has the Newt Gingrich papers at West Georgia <laughs> University. And Senator Doug Jones, again. We thank you so much for spending so much time with us today. And I want to just one more time point out your book about your, about, it's a memoir about your life in civil rights, in politics, and about the prosecution of the two remaining murderers in the Birmingham uh, church bombing, 16th Street church bombing, bending toward justice, the Birmingham church bombing that changed the course of civil rights. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for crossing oh, no, the border and coming you. to see us. Thanks for having me. And just in all, in all disclosure, you know, I got my middle child, Carson, as a University of Georgia graduate. So there's some bulldog in me as well. Just <laughs> say it. And they've got your money. And they've got my money. <laughs> all right, thank you. That's it for us. Uh, we will be back on Monday at 2 o'clock. Galloway and I, we look forward to seeing you on the radio Monday at 2. Take care. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.